Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, July 12th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, Wells Fargo is making some changes to its credit offerings. We'll take a look at SPACs and what separates the good from the not-so-good. And we've got an earnings palooza preview for you. Joining me, as always, this week, it's Certified Financial Planner. And hey, he's all around 10. He's, he's, he's got a pool. He's feeling good about this summer. It's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Just great. It is 90 degrees and sunny out here. I'm talking to you guys, but I'm probably going to hop in the pool afterwards. <laughs> well... Just here's an idea. Maybe uh, you know next week or the week after. You, maybe we do a pool show, right? You go, you go to your back backyard for your pool. I'll, I'll jump over to our neighborhood club pool here, and, and you know we'll have the splashing of the water in the background. <laughs> It'll create some nice, uh, nice, nice ambient noise there. Maybe you know, let's talk about that after we after we get done taping. All right, <laughs> <laughs> Matt. Last week uh, there was an interesting headline out there regarding Wells Fargo that. Uh, we talked a little bit about it amongst uh, some of us on the team here, and, and, and you and I were kicking this around. Uh, Wells Fargo notified customers that it's closing down all personal lines of credit. Uh, now, this uh, to me, there, there, are, there are a number of different ways you can look at this. Um, and, and having worked in the banking industry myself, I mean, I understand the perspective. I understand where they're coming from because it seems like they're saying, well, we feel like we can put our customers into uh, a better product, a more appropriate product, whether it's whether whether it's some type of a credit card offering or or whatever. I mean, it, 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 but to me, the the risk here is in the messaging, and so far. To me, it feels like they're failing, but but let's talk about this for a minute. If you go over a little bit, what exactly is going on here with Wells Fargo? Well, they're doing a terrible job of selling it to customers <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the media, I'll tell you that much. Um, they got Elizabeth Warren all riled up again. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not I mean, too tough to do, though. I mean, she, she Not for Wells Fargo. Back, no. yeah. Wells Fargo, I mean, you know, the this, this CEO walks in with his shoe untied, she'll, she'll call him out on it. Um <laughs> I, I, lo- I love watching Elizabeth Warren, by the way. Watch- she, she keeps the banks on their toes. I think she's, she does. She does. Uh, she's definitely a necessary part of the system. Yep. Um, yep. Checks but, and balances. So they're getting rid of these personal lines of credit, which is kind of a unique product. Most times when you get an unsecured loan, it's usually in one of, the t- one of two forms. You either get a credit card, which is essentially an, a personal line of credit. Or you get a personal loan, which is a fixed balance, fixed monthly payment, things like that. So this is kind of a strange product. Why? So you have to stop and think, why would a bank get rid of any product? Is it unpopular? Were they just not getting enough people signing up for it? Was it inefficient to have? Meaning, like they said, that we could better serve our customers with other products. So is it just kind of draining resources? Is it losing money? Meaning... Are they doing a bad job of underwriting it and people are and seeing a high level of defaults? So we don't know the exact reasons. They, they say it has nothing to do with the Fed's growth cap because that was my first reaction. Remember, they're, they're not allowed to grow right now. So my reaction was they were getting rid of that to, get, to be able to add more profitable kinds of loans to their books. Um, but they said that's not the reason. It looks like it's a good business move they're essentially consolidating the types of loans they offer because th- there's nothing you can do with a personal line of credit that you can't do with a good credit card 
or that you can't do with a personal loan. And right now, remember, loans declined at banks year over year over the past year. Savings rates are up. People are taking out fewer loans. They could just be seeing lower balances and are consolidating products. And also remember that, I mean, maybe not now because Jason's house is a construction zone, (laughs) but our home values are through the roof over the past year. They are. And people have home equity to borrow against, which is a much more efficient way of borrowing money than getting a personal line of credit. Right now, if I wanted to get a personal line of credit, I would pay 7 or 8% interest, most likely. If I were to borrow money against the equity in my house, I would pay 3%. So why would people use these personal lines of credit if they can borrow other ways? So I'm, I'm sensing it's a demand and kind of an allocation of resources issue here. But they messed up when they said, this could lower consumers' credit scores. Yes, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but they they really didn't sell it very well. <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, and and I think that to me was that to me was what could potentially uh, grind someone's gear, so to speak. Right? I mean, you, you, through no fault of your own, they're saying, "Hey, your credit score might be dinged uh, because of this action." And well, there's just not much we're going to be able to do about it. And and so to me, like. That that's just obviously not very customer centric. It's not customer centric at all. Um, the, the way they message that, and maybe they're going to backtrack and fi- try to figure out a way to, to 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 rectify that situation. Because to to me, I mean, honestly, this is something where I mean, the consumer should not be held accountable here, right? This is through no fault of their own, particularly if they're ultimately going into some other type of lending product. Because I mean, like you said, th- this was something that, I mean, I-, I did a little bit of digging here just to get a better idea as to how important this was to the business. And I mean, if you look through their 10K, I mean, the personal lending division, I mean, this little chunk of the business, the personal lending portion of the business represented $594 million in revenue in 2020 for the bank. And that was, like you said, loans declining. That was down from $652 million in 2019. Now, this is in the context of a bank that brought in just a little over $58 billion in revenue in 2020. So, I so mean, it, 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 is, yeah, it is insignificant, really. Um, so, so, to your point, maybe it's just, hey, getting rid of excess risk or, or products that they don't need to manage because they can put people into, into better products. I get that, absolutely. Um, but, but when you message it the way they've messaged it, uh, it, it really just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Well, it's not the consumer's fault, and it's not necessarily Wells Fargo's fault. I think Elizabeth Warren's actually mad at the wrong people. Um, it's the credit bureau's fault, or the credit scoring, uh, it's FICO's fault. Specifically, that shouldn't affect the, There should be some sort of provision that, say, if your bank closes, if they shut down a product like you see right now, if something happens through no fault of the consumer, there should be some sort of provision in the credit scoring formula that ensures that that customer is not affected because it's not their fault. It's not necessarily the bank's fault. You can't fault the bank for making a good business decision. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I so agree. It, it's not necessarily their fault. But it because of the way the credit scoring formula is set up, this can affect consumers in two ways. One, uh, a bit the second biggest category of your credit score is the amounts you owe, and that generally means the amount you owe relative to the amount of available credit. Now you tell some of these consumers we're getting rid of ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of your available credit. All of a sudden, their utilization rate shoots up without any effect of their own, and their score gets dinged. On the other hand, if they've had these accounts for a while, there's another credit score category that makes up 15% of your score called length of credit history. And if you get rid of that, especially if it's one of the consumer's older accounts, 
it can really hurt. You, you've probably heard before you're not supposed to close your oldest credit cards and things I like have, that. Yeah. Yep. Um, and sa- same idea there because, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it reduces the age of your average account, which can also adversely affect your score. So it can, but it's not necessarily for anything Wells Fargo's doing. It's really because of how the credit scoring system set up. So I feel like Wells Fargo should try to work with the FICO people to make sure it doesn't, you know, I, I, I just feel like they're not going about it the wrong way, but I don't necessarily think it's their fault. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, 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 I think that what you've just said here, you know, frankly, Matt, maybe you need to be working with their investor relations department or something because all, all they had to do was basically message it the way you just said it and say, listen, this is something that based on this set of rules could impact your credit score. However, we're going to work with the appropriate agencies to make sure that it doesn't, right? It's basically saying, like, here's a set of rules that everybody's been playing by here. We need to go back and change the rules, right? I mean, there, there needs to be something, there needs to be uh, some sort of amendment there that, that helps protect the consumer in a situation like this. And maybe, maybe that's ultimately what will happen here. Um, again, it just goes back to their messaging from the very get-go here has just been not not so great. Yeah, and I mean, I would I would love to see. I, I mean, I call out Elizabeth Warren because she's the head of the Senate Banking Committee, so that's why right, she gets right, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, I I would rather her, see her put more pressure on FICO, the Fair Isaac Corporation, to make the credit scoring model more fair. Because when you think about it, there are a lot of businesses springing up based on the premise that the credit scoring system is not fair. I mean, that's that's the whole point of Upstart's business. Um, and they're doing really well with it. And it's because the credit score credit scoring methodology is somewhat flawed. Um, so I think they're pressuring the wrong people. You can't, it's, it's wrong to pressure Wells Fargo to keep a failing product on their books. It's, it, it's, it's also wrong to fault the consumers when a bank shuts down or when a bank discontinues a product. Um, if, I mean, if one of my credit card issuers decides to cancel one of my credit cards, for no reason, which they have the right to do. They do that. I mean, during the financial crisis, they were canceling consumers' credit cards left and right for no fault of their own to, to kind of reduce risk. There should be some sort of provision in the rules that, that that doesn't affect your credit score, that it's considered for scoring purposes, like you maintain that credit line in good standing because you did. So I, I, I would like to see that. I, I, I think I, I wish she would let me uh, talk to her about who who she needs to put pressure on, but I don't I don't know if she's a fan of our show or not. Well, we can only we can only hope we can only hope. Uh, Matt, you know we talk a decent bit about SPACs on this show. We even ran a four part series on SPACs earlier this year. Had a lot of fun putting those shows together. Um, you and I were talking about an article we just read here on CNBC uh, in regard to SPACs. And there was some interesting data from Wolf Research in this article that that says that on average, it was talking about the performance of SPACs. I think it's basically about one year in here, but but this this research, uh, this data from Wolf Research says that on average, SPACs with experienced sponsors record greater returns. And by sponsors, you know that's the blank check company that's bringing the actual business into its universe, right? To bring it public. So, uh, we want to talk about this for a minute, just from the bigger picture, uh, perspective of, of SPACs and sort of what you, what you think about this data, what you think it says. Um, and then also talk a little bit more, I mean, a specific SPAC out there that's been in the news here over the past couple of days, Virgin Galactic, for obvious reasons, a successful flight there, uh, into, 
uh, into space. Uh, but but let's go ahead and, and start with just the bigger picture implications here, because I, I mean, it, it doesn't sound all that surprising, but by the same token, it, it does feel like this is this is still a very short timeline uh, on which to be judged. It is. And the kind, I think the point that they're trying to make is that the market was flooded with specs. I have some stats right here. There were, there have been, there were, in, in 2018, there were 46 specs that went public. In t- 2019, there were 59. In 2020, there were 248. Holy cow. In 2021, already, there were 367. Wow. So the market was kind of flooded with these. And it used to be that when you were a SPAC sponsor, it's because you knew something about the business you were, or the, the industry you were trying to go after. Now it's like everybody with any sort of credibility was starting a SPAC. Like Shaquille O'Neal had his own SPAC. I was going to say, it doesn't even feel like you really need that credibility. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you just have to have some kind of a name or, or Right. I mean, unless he a... was trying to take like the Los Angeles Lakers public, I really don't know how his experience <laughs> would come into play. Or Papa John's, maybe. I could see it, like some pizza place because he sits on the board of Papa John's, I think. Still, well, and right? he, he, he owns a lot of Five Guys uh, as another ah, one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, five Guys pretty good. But... But I mean, you know, I love Shaq, so nothing against <laughs> yeah, Shaq. Yeah, me too. Me but too. But the point being, you it's and that's really one of the things I look for. I'm I'm everyone always says, how do you pick out all these specs? There's you know 400 of them. How do you decide you know the three to put in your portfolio? And that's one of the things I look at. Remember Latch we had on the show? They were taken public by a spec called Tishman Spire, uh, or Tish, our TSI Innovation Acquisitions, sponsored by Tishman Spire, one of the biggest commercial real estate firms in the country. So that's clearly a sponsor that knows a lot about that industry. That's a good partner. It's really SPACs. The partnership aspect is really un, really undervalued. It, it, it's the celebrity aspect of it is getting way too much attention, and the partnership aspect's getting too little. I mean, our, think of the Motley Fool's investing strategy. How we we want businesses that are partners. We want businesses that you know, where the CEO is a partner to their shareholders. Who's, I mean, when when I got hired here. They told me that we would rather have a great partner than a great writer. Um, it, it just it, it's it's such a valuable part of business in general, and it's really it's become undervalued in the whole SPAC craze just because of all the big name people throwing their names in, like Bill Ackman, like not even like the Shacks, like the Bill Ackmans, the you know Chamath. I mean, Ch- Chamath worked at Facebook. Did he ever? You know, start a space travel company? No, <laughs> no that one's done well, but but that's the <laughs> exception, not the rule, according to this research. Yeah. Um. But it, there, and there are a lot of successful SPACs that were partnered with people who knew that industry really, really well. I mentioned Latch as a as a great example. Um. I mean, twenty three and Me. You can kind of argue that Richard Branson has a, a lot of experience with cons, you know consumer branding and things like that. Um, he's. I don't think he's done any genetics research himself, but that's not really the point. It's a it's a consumer products company at this point. Yeah. Um. So there, there. Some of the more successful SPAC IPOs. I'm trying to think of a good example from a you know a year ago, but that was kind of before the big SPAC craze. Yeah. Um. Well, let's talk a minute then about the SPAC that I think is on everybody's radar right now, and it was really interesting to see the. The, the, the sort of the, the the change in um, reception here from the morning to to now because we know of course over the weekend that Richard Branson uh, was able to 
successfully make his way to the to the edge of space there uh, with that Virgin Galactic flight. Um, I, I mean, I mean, as a space guy, I mean, I really enjoy thinking about all that stuff. I thought that was just awesome. I mean, I love to see that kind of stuff. I just think it's cool. I love thinking about it. Uh, I, I think as an investor, you have to take a, a much bigger picture sort of, of, of uh, view there and, and think about how this may impact our our world over the course of the next decade and beyond, right? I mean, when you look at Virgin Galactic at its very core, I mean, this is a space tourism company first and foremost, right? I mean, this is a business that is essentially pre-revenue, right? The market's valuing this company at somewhere in the neighborhood of like $10 billion, which yep, is 10.1. phenomenal. Um, they have around 600 reservations for tickets on future flights. Those prices are anywhere between two hundred and $250,000 each. So you do the math there and you got something in the neighborhood of $130, $135 million uh, based on that right there. Now, clearly, over the course of the coming five, probably ten years beyond. I mean, this is not something that is going to be for the masses because the masses can't afford it, right? I mean, this is going to be something for people that can afford it and that have the intestinal fortitude to actually go through with it. And, and I think there are a lot of people that probably say they would like to do it, but when it, right, it gets right down to it, maybe they're going to take a pass because they, they, they want to they feel a little bit more safe before they actually go through with it. But But my point ultimately is, you know, after we saw this headline break later on in the day where Virgin Galactic is doing another offering, they're going to sell $500 million of shares. And hey, I don't begrudge them that. I think it's a great move. You got to take advantage when your stock price is feeling the love like theirs are, uh, like theirs is. But I mean, to me, you know, this is a this is a SPAC that while, while it, 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 it feels like there's a lot of potential there, it's also really hard to see in the near term. I mean, how how big how big can this company really get from a revenue perspective, just based on what they're doing right now in selling those tickets to go out into you know for a fifteen twenty minute ride up into space? Um, but but it's also going to be about what they learn and develop along the way with with making all of these investments and building out their capabilities. Yeah, and you you really hit the nail on the head there that it's pre revenue. I mean, yes, great achievement. Richard Branson got to go into space. His it you know very successful flight. No. No hitches that when the the spacecraft touched down, they said it looked flawless. You know, excellent achievement. He didn't pay for his ticket. <laughs> this is still a pre-revenue company. Um, there are ways out from realizing any of that revenue, which, so you said, I think 135 million or so of booked revenue. That means they're trading. That means they're trading for almost a hundred times the revenue that they'll eventually get. Not even like price to sales. That's revenue that they're eventually going to get. Um, at some point, it'll become more affordable. They're going to have to convince people to actually take these flights. Um, I, I don't affordability or not. I'm not doing it. <laughs> well, I mean that's a good point. Like I think you <laughs> asked people whether they would do it, and and I think most people are going to have an immediate answer like, hell yeah, I'd love to do it, or no way, there is not enough money in the world, and I'm not going to do it. And and it's funny because. Honestly, Matt, I would do it. I, to me, that would be something. That would be like the coolest fun park ride in the world. I, I feel like I would be okay taking that risk. Now, with that said, I don't have two hundred grand to plunk down on this thing, so I'm gonna have to take a pass for now too. So it is sort of you got two hurdles to clear. You need people to say yes and actually follow through with it, and you need people who can actually afford it. Well, I'll, I'll do it after a few years of successful <laughs> flights. I'm not gonna be on like. Be 
I'm not going to be on like flight number three. You don't want to be the guinea pig. I appreciate that. I don't think many of us does. I mean, I'm not Richard. He's he's an adventurer at heart. I mean, always has been. Um, I mean, we've seen pictures of him. I think bungee jumping and stuff like that. And, uh, that's not me. I don't know if that's oh, yeah. you or not, but that's not yeah. me. I mean, I've never been bungee jumping, never been, uh, you know, I never, never been parachuting, but it's not, it's not for a lack of like thinking it would be fun to do. I guess it's just the, our paths never crossed, so it just never happened. But, uh, I don't know. To me, to me, space is just, it's been something I've always thought about as a kid and just all of those different possibilities. And I, and I think that as time goes on, we're going to see more and more people. More and more people are going to, I think, take interest in it. But, but there's no question those costs have to come down. And so when you look at the way the way that Virgin Galactic is being valued today, but there's just an awful lot of success and growth being priced into that business today, which is it's a little bit hard, uh, I think, even for the most uh, optimistic investor out there to 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 fully be able to stomach. Yeah, I th- I think it's going to take a decade before they even justify the current valuation with their revenue. I look at Virgin Galactic as a company that could be a home run when my kids are like 50 years old. Like it could be really like a, it's the ultimate long-term play. I mean, right now they're, they're they got the first mover advantage. Um, They they have the, the know-how they have the publicity. They have, they have a, they have great PR. I mean, I, that company has fantastic PR. They have a big ability to raise capital better than any other space tourism company I know, with the exception of Blue Origin, because Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos is funding it. Um, but, you know, great access to the public markets. I, I could see that being a, a home run when I'm old. So I it's it I'm a long-term thinker, but we've talked about this before, but there has to be some point where I see a path to profitability. And right now, it... They could be profitable in 10 years. They could be profitable in 20 years. It could take longer than that. It's really just up in the air. I I guess not taking away anything from him. I think that's a fantastic achievement. Um, It's been, I think he, Branson founded it, what, 17 years ago, something like that. It's been a, it's been a long time in the making. So congratulations to the Virgin Galactic team. I'm not going to be getting on your spacecraft anytime soon. Jason might. Um, I, I think, um, you know, as you're, when you what do they call it the fool's errand when you get a vacation i think they should pay for you to go up to the the up to space but i'm not doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i feel like given my druthers i would probably choose uh blue origin over virgin galactic because i think blue origin takes you actually further into space but uh hey you know listen oh so you really want to go for it oh yeah yeah yeah. if hey, you're listen, gonna do it you might as well just go all the you know wait why don't you wait till they go to mars that's what he wants trying go to do or, or something go home go big or go home you know that's that's what i say uh matt <laughs> it is earnings palooza week earnings season is kicking off here uh over the coming uh few days here and as always uh, earnings season kicks off with uh, the the biggest of the big banks uh, reporting. We've got J.P. Morgan and uh, Golden Slacks, as some people like to call them, Goldman Sachs on Tuesday. Uh, we've got Bank of America City, Wells Fargo on Wednesday. We've got Morgan Stanley on Thursday. I mean, we got a big week ahead of us here uh, with a lot of earnings reports. And this is an interesting time for big banks because it does feel like regulators are starting to uh, take some of the pressure off, which means that these banks are getting a chance to uh, 
to put the pedal down a little bit. So so we wanted to see instead of two to watch this week, we wanted just to kind of go go on with a little a little bit of an earnings season preview and give give our listeners a chance to hear what you'll be looking for from these big banks as they report throughout the week. I mean, obviously, the ones I watch the closest are the three that I own. I, I own Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo out of that group. Right. Um, Bank of America is by far the biggest of the three in my portfolio. Um, I mean, like the dividends and buybacks were mentioned, were already in press releases like a week or two ago. So that's not that's not the surprise. Remember, all twenty three of the banks that were subject to the stress test passed them easily. Um, the big rule change this year is now they don't have to submit their capital plans for approval. You know, say, can we raise our dividend by 20% and can we buy back $10 billion worth of stock? Now they can just do it as long as they maintain a certain capital buffer. So it gives them banks a lot more leeway to return capital to shareholders as they see fit. We already knew that's happening. What I'm really curious about is if you think of kind of the first quarter of 2020 as when the nation fell into the COVID crisis and we really, you know, in 2020, January and February were pretty much normal months and then March, you know, went crazy. Um, so the first first quarter of last year really gave us the glimpse of what the pandemic was going to look like for banks. This quarter is going to give us a glimpse of what the recovery is going to look like. And what I mean by that is in April and March, the first two months of the quarter, there were still mask mandates everywhere. There was capacity limitations. The vaccine rollout hadn't been, you know, you couldn't get a vaccine everywhere in April yet. Um, so April and May were pretty much still, I'd call the stay at home months. Offices hadn't reopened pretty much anywhere at that point. Um, things like that. In June it was when we really saw all of the regulations start to relax. When we really saw people start to move about the country again. That's when you, you saw the TSA numbers coming out about how the the most travelers since the pandemic started are, are flying and, you know, things to that effect. So we're going to see, and now, and people are out spending money. That's when Brian Moynihan, if you remember, said consumer spending was up 20% year oh, from yeah, pre-pandemic yeah. levels. Yep. Um, that happened in June. So we're going to get a glimpse this year, not, not the whole quarter, but we're going to get a glimpse of what, how the recovery is affecting banks. Are people borrowing money more? You know, I'm expecting to see credit card balances start to tick up a little bit. I would think so, especially because it at least it sounded like a lot of people were paying those credit card balances down over the last year. Because I mean, we we just weren't spending our money really on much because we just didn't have as many options, and so so it did sound like at least those credit card balances were coming down. Yeah, I'm expecting you know not necessarily loan balances to skyrocket. Like I said, most of this quarter was pretty locked down, um, and I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think at least one of the stimulus checks was in this past quarter, uh, that or at would, least that at would, least backing up to it, at least close that would to make it. Makes sense. I mean, there have been I think three rounds. There right? were three. So I think would, the third yeah. one was um, somewhere in the second quarter, but I'm not positive on that. Um, but you know, employment's really coming back up. We're seeing wage growth really start to hit. So I want to see how that's translating into bank profits. Um, I want to see what the delinquency numbers are looking like. I want to see, like I said, loan growth. I want to see what interest margins are looking like. Um, and I, I kind of just want to see how the business is going and, the, and management's commentary on how things are shaping up now that the world's really starting, not the world, the United States is really starting to return to normal. Um, I'm, I'm curious about Citi in particular because they're the most international. Um, I just mentioned that the US is returning to normal. Um, Citi has a lot of international business, so they're kind of going to be you know, the the other one. 
um, you know, on the other side of that thing. Uh, Goldman, I'm really watching because they have their investment banking division benefited from the stay-at-home economy and the volatility in the market, which the market really hasn't been volatile lately. It's been kind of boring in yeah, a good way. Yeah, boring markets usually go up. I, I mean, you know, it feels like every yeah every day you kind of see things. It, it, it looks like things just continue to to plod onward and upward. I mean, 2019 was the most boring stock market I can remember, and things went up. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it, things went up by like 0.2% a day, it seemed like, for the yeah. entire year. Well, uh, I mean, we're halfway through <laughs> the year, and the stock market's something like 15 or 16% up at this point. I mean, the market's up right. 15, 16%. That's, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it. It's just been nice, slow, methodical, uh, sort of, sort of progress, uh, progressive year. But there was a ton of volatility in the first quarter. Remember the, when all the tech stocks were, were, going, were plunging and, oh, you yeah. know, because every, pretty much everyone at the Motley Fool is all the tech stocks. I, they think I'm weird because I have value stocks. <laughs> um, so every, every I remember I was on a show with Tim Byers, and you know the, the market was up by like thirty percent, but that was all the reopening stocks. And he said, "Oh, my portfolio is all in the red because all the all the tech stocks." So there was a lot of volatility. And the point being that investment banks benefit from that trading revenues up, things like that. The SPAC boom mostly happened in the first quarter. Remember we we did it. Me and you did a show. On one day, where like twenty new SPACs went public. That's right. I remember that. Um, and that and and investment banks got underwriting fees for that. So I I I would call the second quarter a much more normal environment for investment banks. So I'm expecting Goldman Sachs revenue to drop significantly. Yeah. But I want to. I kind of want to see how how it's affected them now that you know volatility's down, the SPAC craze is down a little bit. It's a more normal environment. Uh, the, the flip side of that is their asset management business should be, you know, firing on all cylinders. You know, the market goes up, the client balances go up. They were already over $2 trillion. Um, so that translates to more fee income and stuff like that. So a lot of really interesting moving parts to watch this quarter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of healthy balances, I mean, it was uh, a couple of weeks back, I saw a passage um, from a, a recent Wayfair investor presentation at one of these one of these uh, conferences and and uh CEO of, of the business uh had noted that um they saw pre-pandemic savings levels something like 800 billion dollars post-pandemic now in the 3 trillion dollar range with all of the stimulus and everything that's going on um and and basically equated to about 4 years worth of saving done in like 1 year and so you couple that along with credit card balances that have come down. Um, it feels like there should be some consumer enthusiasm out there to spend. Uh, but yeah, we shall see. Yeah, we shall. And you see. see, you see that happen with savings rates and loans during pretty much any uncertain period. The same thing happened in 08, 09. Um, You saw savings ra- savings rates before COVID were the highest they'd been in recent history was during the financial crisis. Because people are worried about spending money. They want to save a little bit more. This time around, you're seeing people not only save all this, some of the stimulus money they're getting, things like that. They didn't have anything to spend money on, which wasn't the case in 08, 09. You could still go out and spend money if you wanted to. People were still going to Disney World in 2008. That wasn't the case in 2020. Um, so, And you're also seeing some a lot of people, like I mentioned the refinancing thing, tap into the equity in their house. Um, home equity has gone up by about $2 trillion this year alone. That's amazing. That's money that people can tap into. And a lot of people don't have anything specific in mind they want to do with it. They just see, I can, I can borrow you know $100,000 against my house at 3% interest. How much longer <laughs> yeah. am I going to be able to do that for? 
might as well get, might as well do it now and set it aside for when I have a project I want to do or something like that. So that's where yeah. a lot of the savings is coming from also. I think it feels like too, I mean, the maybe we're seeing the the drumbeat of inflation uh become louder makes perfect sense. Uh but with that drumbeat uh comes the the specter that we we see the we see interest rates uh on the way, on the way up and, and and ultimately I mean that that could happen sooner rather than later. I mean the timing is always a little bit squishy there. Um so so yeah, I mean that 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 certainly is something that could play on banks favor. I'll be interested to hear uh, what they have any thoughts on on the inflation um the inflationary environment and kind of where they see that going. That'll be another thing to pay attention to. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the inflation too because I have an unpopular opinion about that. I think it's here to stay. Oh yeah, think, really? I, I don't think I don't it's know as, how unpopular that is though. I I think I agree with you. I was thinking about that the other day. To me, this doesn't feel transitory because when you, you know, you you were just talking about a lot of great examples of the wealth that has been created here over the last couple of years between gains in the market, between gains in housing. There has been a ton of wealth created. More so, I mean, it, it, it hasn't been necessarily normal. So to me, an inflation it, it almost has to happen. Uh, in order to to try to normalize this a little bit, I tend to agree with you. I think I think that we're going to see this inflation stick around. I don't know that it's as transitory. Yeah, I, as, I feel as like everybody. I feel like everyone believes that, but the Fed. It, well, the, yeah, but the, maybe, the Federal Reserve is the only one that keeps saying this is this is not going to last. It's it's transitory, and everyone else is saying that no. This this feels kind of real. Well, maybe maybe we'll see in hindsight that the Fed and Wells Fargo went to the same school of uh, of of messaging, right? Maybe they're they're both uh, just kind of falling short of, of really uh, messaging as as well as they as well as they could. <laughs> but hey, we'll see. It'll be a busy week, Matt. But uh, listen, that's going to do it for us this week. I really really appreciate you as always taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Uh, show's just always fun, man. I always enjoy talking with you about this stuff, and uh, and I think our listeners enjoy uh, hearing what you have to say. Yeah, always good catching up with you and, and doing the show. Yes, sir. And remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus, or you can drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.